Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. Our scripture reading today is Genesis eleven twenty seven through twelve three. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred, in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But they came to Haran and settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is God's word. It is absolutely true, and it is given to us in love. Thanks so much, Kathy. C.S. Lewis uh, gave a remarkable lecture uh, in a difficult time. It was the fall of 1939. He was on the faculty at Oxford University uh, in Great Britain at the time. And think about what was going on in Britain in the fall of 1939. This was the outset of World War II, uh, the rising tensions with Nazi Germany now breaking out into outright war. And a question was floating around uh, in those days about what the future of the university would be uh, during wartime, whether or not uh, things like learning and appreciating literature and art, uh, poetry, drama, uh, whether or not these things had any place uh, during wartime. And opinions had been going around on all sides. And Lewis gave a lecture uh, in the chapel uh, that was later published entitled Learning in Wartime. It's a brilliant and beautiful uh, essay or lecture, um, and it has a lot that speaks really, if you, if you swap out wartime for the time of global pandemic, uh, it works almost perfectly uh, as a one-to-one, that many of the lessons and hardships uh, that he was leading people through at that time match up with some of what we are le- being led through and what we're learning through during this time. And I want to read uh, one particularly poignant uh, section here because I think it helps us uh, to see our lives with some clarity uh, that we only really see during times of trial and hardship. Lewis says this, war makes death real to us. And that's certainly been true of this time, hasn't it? That death, our mortality, the fragility of our lives is very, very real to us. War makes death real to us. 
And that would have been regarded as one of its blessings by most of the great Christians of the past. They thought it good for us to be always aware of our mortality. I am inclined to think they were right. All the animal life in us, all schemes of happiness that centered in this world were always doomed to a final frustration. In ordinary times, only a wise man can realize it. But now the stupid of it, stupidest of us know it. We see unmistakably the sort of universe in which we have all along been living, and we must come to terms with it. If we had foolish, unchristian hopes about human culture, they are now shattered. If we thought that we were building up a heaven on earth, if we looked for something that would turn the present world from a place of pilgrimage into a permanent city satisfying the soul of man, we are disillusioned and not a moment too soon. There's certainly been a lot of that. I know in my own heart and life uh, during the last couple of months of this ordeal that so much of what we thought was solid uh, and enduring about the institutions and the lives that we had built uh, is shown to be to be fragile. It's one of the lessons of this pandemic. It's also one of the lessons and one of the experiences of reading the first 11 chapters of Genesis. I mean, really, the I don't know that there's a better description of what happened in the building of the Tower of Babel that Willie preached about last week than this last sentence from Lewis. If we thought we were building up a heaven on earth, if we looked for something that would turn the present world from a place of pilgrimage into a permanent city satisfying the soul of man, we are disillusioned. Genesis 1 through 11 is a disillusioning read. We read so much about uh, humanity created in God's image, created good and beautiful with the dignity of a royal vocation in this world. And yet chapter by chapter, we see the best of human ability lead only to violence and to foolishness and to sin. Until finally at Babel, having been told to disperse and to fill the earth and to subdue it, the people say, no, 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 let's make a home here. Let's make something solid. Let's build a utopia where we can all live together and where we can even transcend this created world and ascend to God himself. Babel is a human self-salvation project. It is the claim that we can attain the life that we long for. The world that we want, it's within our grasp if we can only figure out how to build it. And friends, that is the, the central tenet of faith in our late modern secular world, right? That salvation is within our grasp, that what we want most we can attain. Whether it's a better world, whether it's uh, the flourishing of our world economically through theories either to the left or to the right, that if we just get it done and get it done rightly, then we'll have the world that we've longed for. Whether it's about our individual quests for life and fulfillment and self-authenticity, that if we can all just live out of our authentic selves and the world will be better, that everything will work the way that we want it to. And so both as individuals and as a people, we often say to ourselves, the world that we want, the lives that we want, are just there within our grasp if we can figure out how to build them. And at first, that feels like good news, doesn't it? It feels like good news to think that the world that we want is attainable. The lives that we long for within our own wisdom, our own ingenuity, and our own power. And yet, if you think about it long enough, there's a crushing pressure in that. 
if the world that we long for, the lives that we long for, are ultimately up to us, then it's all up to us. And there is a crushing weight of pressure on us. And so in Genesis chapter 11, when the people all say to themselves under the leadership of Nimrod, when they say to themselves, let us build Babel, let's build the world that we long for, God says no. Right, That's what the scattering of the nations at Babel finally is. It's God's unequivocal no to human self-salvation projects, whether they're the self-salvation projects of Babel uh, or the self-salvation projects of, of Americans living in the year 2020, that all of us seeking to save ourselves and build a better life think we can do it. And God in Genesis chapter 11 says, no, no, you can't do it. And then at the end of Genesis 11 and, and pivoting into Genesis 12, we get the beginning of God's answer. That yes, God does say no to human self-improvement projects, to human utopian dreams. God says no. But in Genesis 11, towards the end, and then in 12, we get the beginning of God's deeper yes. That He has said no to our self-salvation projects, but He said yes to us. He said yes to our world. He said yes to salvation, but it has to come from a different source. It has to come in a different way. And so that's the story that we really see beginning with the call of Abram. After Babel, uh, the story continues with a genealogy that starts in Genesis 11, uh, sorry, Genesis 11, chapter, uh, chapter 11, verse 10, and goes on to verse 27. Uh, we skipped over that part. We've read a lot of genealogies in this series. So I thought uh, I would spare Kathy reading another one and you all listening to one. You know, at least when we're gathered in person, you're a captive audience. Uh, but there is nothing keeping you from uh, surfing Facebook or looking at the news or something else if we read an entire chapter of genealogy when you're on your internet. Um, but this one is a direct genealogy from Shem, the son of Noah, who was blessed, all the way down to the birth of Abram. And in this genealogy, uh, getting to Terah, uh, Abram's father, which is where we picked up our story, we really see the tone of the biblical narrative pivot. Because Genesis 1 through 11 is really the story of the entire world, right? It's the story of these big global events, creation, fall, flood, Babel. These are stories that involve the entire human family. But in Genesis chapter 12, when God calls Abram, it sets the tone for the rest of the Bible where the rest of the story is never going to lose touch with what happens to the rest of the world. That's going to be crucially important for us to see, and we see it even in this passage, that the blessing of Abraham is always meant to be for the blessings of all the families of the earth. But the story is going to zoom in and God's redemptive plan is going to zoom in on one man and his family. So from here, the story is going to go from being a story about everybody everywhere to a story about Abraham and about his children, uh, Isaac and Jacob. It's going to be the story of Moses and the salvation of God's people out of Egypt. It's going to be the story of Saul and David and Jonathan, the kings of Israel. It's going to be the story of the prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. It's ultimately going to be the story of Jesus, the descendant of Abraham, through whom all these promises come to bear, 
through whom the entire world will be blessed. It's the story uh, that we often refer to as the story of the covenant. That God enters into a special relationship with a particular group of people, not just for their sake, but so that through them, He might reach the entire world. That through them, the salvation that we all long for, the better world that we all dream of, the life with God we were created for, would come to be known, as he says here, to all of the families of the earth. And so we want to look at this call of Abraham, starting in verse uh, chapter 12, verse 1. And there's really some amazing parallels that the author intentionally draws uh, between the call of Abraham at the beginning of chapter 12 and the work of the tower builders of Babel at the beginning of 11. And in this contrast, we see the vastly different way that we believe our salvation comes and the way that God reveals his salvation will come. The first of these contrasts we see right there in verse 1 of chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country. The call of Abraham begins with God's voice. It begins with God addressing Abraham and calling him to an obedient life of leaving everything he's known. If you contrast that with the building of Babel, which begins when they said, uh, this is chapter 11, verse 3, they said to one another, come, let us build. Right? Genesis 11 is human uh, intellect and reasoning turned in on itself. It's human beings saying to one another, let us do this thing. Let us come up with this project. And in Genesis chapter 12, with the call of Abraham, we see God speaking into the, into the world, breaking the echo chamber of human beings just talking back to themselves about our own schemes, our own agendas, our own plans. That faith begins when we find ourselves addressed by a voice beyond ourselves. Faith is the thing that Abraham is most known for. When Abraham's story is called to mind by the New Testament writers, it's almost always in connection to his faith, right? That Abram uh, believed God and it was counted to him, his righteousness, his faith. That Abraham is the father of all the faithful, of all those who believed. That Abraham is the beginning of covenant faith from God's people. And it begins, faith always begins, when we find ourselves addressed by a voice from beyond ourselves, calling us out of ourselves, calling ourselves out of our own world, out of a world that we can manage and plan and scheme, and into a better and larger story, a story that transcends our plans and our wisdom, and that calls us with the authority to order our lives in an entirely different way. So much of our lives, so much of human life, is just human beings talking back and forth to each other. It's just us talking in this competition of ideas about the best ways, the best plans, the best ways to go about solving our problems. And it does become this hopeless, hopeless pursuit of a dog chasing its tail, believing that eventually if we just talk back and forth enough, we're going to attain to wisdom. Let us build. Right, That was true before the invention of social media, but I'm not sure uh, it has ever been more amplified than it is today. Right, Just try uh, as an experiment, um, if you feel, if you're a glutton for punishment, 
to go onto social media and ask, okay, I'm going to go onto social media and try to learn how we ought to be responding to the coronavirus. My goodness, these experts say this, these experts say that, this group of people says this, this politician says that. It does become a talking to each other, and then certainly not a talking to each other, but a shouting at each other. There has to be, a, and that's just on one issue. Think about the, the big issues of human life, how we meet God, how we attain salvation. Somebody has to cut through the noise. There has to be a voice from beyond us to speak some kind of order into our chaos. And friends, you have been addressed by God. You have been called by God. A voice has spoken to you from beyond this world to call you to himself. Now, you might say, he hasn't spoken to me, right? I mean, you might, you might say, I've never heard a voice. I've never felt a call. I feel very much like this world is pressing in on me and that what I can see and touch and taste, this world is all there is. People talk about a voice from beyond, but I've never heard it. Well, friends, from the point of view of the scriptures, you're starting from the wrong place. That the address, the voice of God, doesn't start with you. It doesn't start with me. It doesn't start with my experience or what I think I thought I heard. It starts with God himself. And it starts not in your subjective experience, having thought a thought or dreamed a dream. It starts in God's revelation of himself. And the scriptures tell us that God is not silent, right? That he speaks to us, that he wants to be known by us, that he's not content to hang out in heaven while we try on earth to do our best to figure it out. He speaks to us. The Christian conviction throughout our history has been that he speaks in the pages of the Bible. But beyond that, he speaks in the person of his son. When John, in writing his gospel, starts it with, in the beginning was the word. And the word, was God, the word was with God, and the Word was God. And then the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Right? God's Word, His voice, His self-expression, His call, took on flesh and blood and came to you. He came to me. He came to us in the person of Jesus. In other words, in Jesus is everything God has ever wanted to say to you. If you wonder what God thinks about you, if you wonder if God has a plan, if you wonder if God has anything to do with you, look to Jesus. Look at the way that he loves. Look at the way that he pours his life out for a sinful and erring humanity. Look at his patience. Look at his tenderness. Ultimately, look at his death on the cross. Look at his resurrection and his empty tomb. That when God breaks his silence, when God speaks, it's a message of self-giving love. It's a message of embrace. It's a message that calls to you and urges you just as the voice spoke to Abram. The voice said to Abraham, go, leave this country. Leave the, the, your father and mother's house, the only world you've ever known. And Jesus comes to you and he says, follow me, follow me. It's what he said to his disciples. It's what he said to, uh, to Peter when he found him mending his nets by the Sea of Galilee, a fisherman. He said, Peter, leave this. Come, follow me. Leave this life you've known. And Peter did. He dropped his nets and he went. He says to Matthew, the tax collector, 
the swindler and the cheat, when he finds him sitting at his tax booth, where he got rich at the expense of God's people. He says, Matthew, come follow me. Leave this life. Leave this sin. Come and follow me. And Matthew left it all and stepped into a new life and a new world, unlike anything he'd ever known. Now, it didn't always go that way. I'm reminded of the story in Luke 18, when the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and asks him, Master, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And after some back and forth, Jesus says, essentially the same message, leave everything. Sell your possessions, give to the needy, and then come and follow me. And we're told that that young man went away sad because he had great wealth. But the call to each of us is the same. Jesus says, follow me. Leave the land of your comfort and your security, your survival strategies, your your self-salvation plans. Leave those things behind. Leave those other voices. Tune your ears and your heart to my voice and follow me. And so Abraham does. That's what faith is. Faith is hearing that voice beyond yourself and answering that call, hearing God's yes, and then saying yes, and walking in faith with one that you cannot see, often cannot hear, but know through Jesus. And so then we see the second uh, difference between God's plan and human plans. Again, in chapter one, uh, or in verse one, The Lord says to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Right? Faith is leaving and stepping into an unknown future. It's stepping into something that you cannot yet know. How different this is from the tower builders of Babel when they say in verse 4, let us build a tower lest we be dispersed. Right? The, the, The driving impulse at Babel uh, was one of security, right? They, they felt their vulnerability and their fragility, right? If they were to be scattered over the earth, if they were to live in their families, if they were to go and be obedient to fill the earth, they would be vulnerable. There'd be a smaller group of them. They'd be in the wild. And so they said, no, no, let's, let's come together. Let's build something here that we can see and touch and know. Build bricks and build a tower. It was a choosing of security over trust. And now here's Abraham stepping into a world that he cannot know at the command of a God that up to this point he had never met. Right? We're told in Joshua chapter 24 that Terah, uh, Abram's father, worshipped idols. He worshipped other gods in the land beyond the river is the way that Joshua says it. Right? So Abraham grew up worshipping other gods. He grew up uh, receiving his religion from his father. And yet here, being addressed by a God he had never met, never known, wasn't raised to know. He's addressed, and God tells him, go into a land that I will show you. Right? you got to leave everything and take my word for it that it's going to be good. This is why the author of Hebrews, in Hebrews 11, that great chapter where uh, the author goes through many of the stories and characters of the Bible, pointing out their faith. He says this about Abram in uh, chapter 11, starting in verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. 
By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has its foundations, whose designer and builder is God. I love that line. Abraham went out not knowing where he was going. He stepped out into an uncertain future, trusting God along the way. Christianity is always and has always been a pilgrim faith. It's a faith that's lived, uh, as the author of Hebrews says, intense. Right? This world, uh, as the old song goes, is not our home. This world as we know it, corrupted by sin. Right? That when you're called uh, by Jesus and respond by faith, all of a sudden your eyes are open to see that this world can never satisfy the deepest longings of your heart. It can't satisfy your longings for communion and justice and peace. It cannot satisfy. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't taste and we don't work and we don't labor for tastes of those things in this world. But our lives make us a stranger to our culture. To be called by Jesus, to to recognize in the voice of one who's beyond us, an authority greater than us, means that we start to look at our own culture with new eyes and start to feel just a little less at home than we did before. Right, We start to realize that the wealth of this world can never build us a strong and secure enough home that we can't lose it. We begin to realize when we look out at the political landscape of our day that we're not entirely satisfied with either of the offers on display. Right, That we have a different source. We have a king who calls us beyond ourselves in this life. And so we, like Abraham, live this life in tents, right? Now, most of us uh, don't literally live in tents, right? Most of us, uh, you're living in, in what looks like from the outside a stable home. But yet the call that comes to each of us calls us to treat even what we look at as security in this life uh, realistically as a tent and not as a tower. And so Abraham ventures out, leaves his religion, leaves his family, going to the voice of this unknown God, only with the hope that it's going to be good, right? He doesn't get a clear picture of exactly where he's going. He doesn't get a roadmap to Canaan. He doesn't get uh, a soil sample of the land to know that it will uh, support him and his family. He's sent out by faith. His trust is in the one who makes the promise, not in the content of the promise, right? He trusts the content of the promise. He trusts that it's going to be good because he's learning to trust the one who made the promise. He trusts even in the absence of detail that the reward will be there because he's venturing everything on the character of the one who makes the promise. Friends, that is the way it is for us in following Jesus. Right, It's trusting Him for our destiny, trusting Him, not uh, the details of where we're headed. We don't know the details, right? We don't know all of them. I can't, I can't tell you how the future of your life is going to go, right? I can't navigate the ups and downs and the diseases and the heartbreaks and everything that your life is going to hold. 
But I can tell you that you can trust the one who calls you, that you can trust Jesus. He doesn't even uh, honestly give us that many details about our ultimate reward, about what heaven will be like. I got in one of these conversations uh, with my own kids uh, earlier this week, wondering as they ask questions about what heaven's going to be like. And usually, you know, uh, it's it's at the level they ask at the level they can understand just as I do, right? It's questions like, are there going to be video games in heaven? Is there going to be pizza in heaven? Is there going to be ice cream in heaven? You know, those kind of questions. And all I'm able to say usually is, well, we don't know. Uh, but what I can promise you is that if it's not there, you won't miss it, right? If, if there's not ice cream in heaven, uh, there's going to be something that gives you so much joy, so much gladness, so much delight that ice cream was shown to only be a shadow, right? We trust the one who made the promise that he is good. You can sell a whole bunch of books. I mean, remember when the, when the, uh, it seemed like there was a trend where three or four books in a row came out about people who claimed to have gone to heaven, had a vision and come back. You can sell a bunch of books if you offer people certainty instead of faith. If you offer people content of the promise instead of blind, not blind, but, but bold trust in the one who makes the promise. Look, the disciples struggled with this. When uh, the rich young man that we talked about earlier in Luke 18, when he walks away from Jesus sad, the disciples themselves are sad, right? Look, I mean, if they see this guy who walks away, who decides not to leave his wealth and they just walked away from their own lives, their own industries, their own wealth. They're going, what about us? We've left so much to follow you, Jesus. And so they ask, then who can be saved? Jesus says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Jesus is saying, essentially, you know me. You can trust me. To leave those things is going to be proven to be nothing. In this life, you're going to taste the blessings of my spirit the fellowship of my church, the life that I offer you in communion with God. You're going to taste real blessing in this life. And 10 times more beyond, we can trust the one who calls and the one who promises. And then finally, uh, the last of these contrasts that we're going to look at is in verse 2. God promises Abraham, and I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will make your name great. Contrast that with what the builders of Babel say in verse 4. Come, let us make a name for ourselves. Right? They're fixated on making a name for themselves. And God says to Abraham, I will make your name great. Now, I love what God doesn't say. Right? He doesn't say you shouldn't worry so much about having a great name. Name here uh, being a stand-in for reputation, for a life that matters, a life that blesses, a life of significance and purpose. God doesn't say, don't worry about that. He doesn't say, make my name great and forget about your name. He says, I will make your name great. I think here we are at the crux of what Jesus says. 
when he says that everyone who loses their life for my sake will find it. Right? Everyone who seeks to hold on to their lives will lose it. If the focus of your life is to magnify your own name, if the focus of your life is to make your own name great, your own name famous, your own name well thought of, to build yourself a kingdom in this world, if you seek that first, you're destined to come up empty. The grave comes for all of us and levels all of our kingdoms. But, as Jesus said, if you seek first my kingdom, all of these things shall be added to you as well. What makes a life great, what makes a life worthy and purposeful, what makes a life matter to a family or to a city, what makes a life great is, is, is labeled by God. Right? Faith means that you let God describe and God fill in the description of what makes for a meaningful life for you, what makes for a great life. And for Abraham and for us, what it is, is there in that promise that I will bless you and you will be a blessing. Right, That you will be blessed. The full blessing of God's love and his grace and his favor and his mercy will be on you. His life by His Spirit lived in you and through you, you will be blessed in order that you might be a blessing for those around you. Now, of course, Abraham, uh, we're told in Hebrews 11, died without seeing uh, the full fruition of what he trusted God for by faith. But Abraham did receive what he was promised. Right At one point, uh, Abraham is not only promised here that the, all the families of the earth would be blessed through him. God goes on to promise him that his descendants will be as many as the stars in the heavens. Uh, he said, you'll be more able to count the sand on the seashore than to name and count your descendants. And Abraham, though long dead, has received the inheritance that he was promised. Through one of his ancestors, through Jesus, his, greater, his greatest son, Jesus is ultimately the one, what God says to Abraham here, all the people that bless you will be blessed and those who curse you will be cursed. Right? That's what finds its ultimate fruition in Jesus. He is the one person in all of humanity that that can be said of. That to bless Jesus, to recognize him as beautiful and good and true and loving and righteous, to bless him is to receive blessing and to curse him is to ultimately be left uh, outside with the curse. But in Christ, we have been blessed. And that blessing that we have received is not meant for us. It's meant for the good of the entire world. We are blessed in order to be a blessing. Abraham was, Christ was, and the church is. Right? That's our vocation as a church. It's to receive the blessing of Jesus to receive his love and his spirit and his power and his life. Not for ourselves, but in order to bless our city, to bless our world, to bless our community. Jack Miller used to say that, uh, that grace is not a coin meant to be spent only on yourself. There's a beautiful passage in 2 Kings where a group of three lepers living in a city under siege by its enemies, uh, having nowhere else to go, the city's at a place where people are desperate and starting to think about eating themselves. Right? These are dark and desperate times. These three lepers, already outcasts, think to themselves, we've got nothing to lose. Let's leave the walls of the city. 
And as they go out, they miraculously find that the enemy is left. And they walk into the, the tents of the enemy and they find food and wealth. They find a banquet set for them. They find all of the wealth and the armor of their enemies. And at first, they just start to gorge themselves. They're starving. They have been starving. So they just start eating. They start storing up their wealth. And then one of them looks to the other and says, what we are doing is not good. We have to go back into the city to tell everyone that we've found a feast, that we've found a banquet, that we've found wealth, that instead of death, we can receive life. And that's the picture of the Christian mission, that we're blessed in order to be a blessing, that we, like those lepers or beggars who found food, going back to tell others where we've found it. Not because we're better, not because we're smarter, not because we're more righteous, but because we have recognized the voice that calls us to so much more than we could ever leave behind. I'll wrap up with this. This is a quote from J.I. Packer, a great uh, English theologian. He says, what is the church? What is the church? I mean, that's a question uh, that uh, this crisis is pressing us to answer, isn't it? You'll hear people talk. I mean, the, the news is notorious for getting uh, for talking uh, wrong about church. Um, but you'll hear church talked about, about, well, uh, is it time for the church to open? As though the church is currently closed. You'll hear talk about the church oftentimes in terms of uh, a place that we go instead of a people who we are, right? That it's like a business to be opened instead of a community living a certain life together. And the scriptures always call us to remember that the church is a who, not a what. It's a who, not a where. It's a who, not a when. And so from that standpoint, the church can no more be closed than Jesus could be kept in the grave. Right? The church exists where his spirit lives and breathes and where it unites us as his people. And yes, we are made and called to worship in person, and we long to be able to do so. But it's important, and I've been sustained through this by remembering that the church is a who. The church is you and me. The church is us together, living our life together. And so that wasn't the quote. That was me. Packer says this. What is the church? It is the true seed of faithful Abraham. Jew and non-Jew together, chosen by God, justified through faith, and freed from sin for a new life of personal righteousness and mutual ministry. It's the family of a loving Heavenly Father, living in hope of inheriting His entire fortune. It's the community of the resurrection, in which the powers of Christ's historic death and present heavenly life are already at work. Sons and daughters of Abraham, living by faith in the one who calls us, the one who promises us, and the one who knits us together in new life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that we can trust the voice that speaks to us, that we can trust the voice of our Father made clear to us in his Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we confess that so often this life, it feels like we are just thinking among ourselves arguing amongst ourselves, trying with our limited reason to figure out the way ahead. We thank you, Lord, that you have broken through, that you have spoken a true and better word, that you call us to follow you into a life and into a world 
that we can only begin to understand. Lord Jesus, we follow you, not because we know all of the details about how the story will work out, but because we trust you. Because we recognize in your voice, the voice of love and mercy and compassion. We recognize in your voice, the power and the authority of our King. And so, Lord Jesus, help us in our unbelief. Help us to follow you by faith. Help us, Lord, to set our own hearts on pilgrimage with you into the world that we are made for. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.